Hello everyone and welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. The topic of today's episode is life. Life is something that dominates Earth, yet we don't see it anywhere else in the universe yet. We don't know how it originated, or even if that origination took place here or elsewhere in the universe. The question of life stems beyond even these profound mysteries, however. Deep ethical dilemmas and fundamental questions regarding the future existence of our species are all philosophical questions that arise when discussing life. Important topics we will cover in future episodes all build off our understanding of life. Time, knowledge, death, these and more all have to be examined under the umbrella of meaning. What is the meaning of life, and how do the premises we establish influence every other aspect of our philosophical worldview? All right, so um, I'll start you out with a softball. What's the meaning of life? (laughs) No, but yeah. But I mean, that's essentially what we're trying to do here, you know, over the course of this is look at it and and break it down into pieces and maybe by answering some of the questions about the little pieces, build an understanding of what what the meaning of life is. So does meaning come from within or without? That's really one of the prime. It's always the oppositions, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of that depends on your worldview, you know, how you how you see other things, your, your opinion on God on the episode we just had, your opinion on the universe and space, the, the metaphysical and the epistemological and the ontological questions, all of them play a part in determining how you view life. So let's start with some of the background. What, let's get basic. What's, how do you, what's the definition of life? What separates living things from non-living things? What have philosophers said about that in the past? Excellent question. All right. So let's get to the real basics. Foundationally, it's animate versus inanimate. If something is animate, it is considered to have life at the most fundamental level. So the pre-Socratics would say motion <laughs> okay. of some kind. So that then across the, the millennia, we did extrapolate that into motion of thought. Uh, emotion of of being a soul mind the whole the whole thing um so if but to be the, the question of life becomes what is it to be human and we've tread into that ground before and we'll keep treading there because it's uh, impossible not to so um, to be alive uh, ethicists would say is not necessarily to be human well, we know that a bacteria isn't human. It's all, a tardigrade is, isn't human, and it's very much alive. But, but the idea of life is almost inextricable to us from what makes us what we are as one element, one p- part of this larger life. Yeah. And it's funny because I already have a million things going in my head about this, you know, and I don't even know which one to start with, but... The one that I'm thinking of right away is, you know, you think about the ancients talking about movement as life. And I don't know if you've seen it, this guy that creates these intricate machines out of out of wood pieces and he lets them go on the beach and they they walk along the beach and he I builds haven't. you haven't I'll have to show you the video. Yeah. But he builds these very elaborate um 
things and they and it looks like they're walking and he sets them free because they are they're powered by the wind and so he builds them and then just sets them free and they just walk down the beach or walk down fields and you know they do their own thing and they they look like they're alive you know you think this looks alive but it's not he carved it out of wood and put it together and you know that's it's easy to draw that distinction once you start to think about it past a surface level. Okay, well, this thing's not alive because he built it. But it's harder to make that distinction when you're looking at nature. Because essentially, our definition of life is still the same as what you just mentioned. If you look up what the definition of life is, right now, scientists kind of have it as metabolism, if, which is movement. Is this thing turning something into something else? is there really is there life. movement yeah. and that's that's life but you start to get down to some of these really small levels and that's that's a hard thing to detect okay well is this is this thing metabolizing something else is it you know well artificial intelligence i'm just sitting here thinking about this this artwork this creation which i do want to see that uh, because that really metaphorically could is not too far away from the idea of if we create something Science fiction has dealt with this for decades and decades, but we're catching up. If we create something and it can have independent thought, is it not intelligent? And if it's intelligent, is it life? Right. See, because that's the other category, characteristic. Right. Because, and I mean, if you had this, if you have HAL 9000, it's, it's taking electricity and it's turning it into something else. You know, so where, yeah, so is it, is it alive, you know? And, you know, you brought up that other, the other point that it is a hard distinction to make as well is, you know, relating what it means to be alive to what it means to be human. And uh, I just read an article, and this was, a, this was a while ago, maybe about a year ago, that anybody who, who owns a pet knew this intuitively, but, you know, they did a study and the results of the study were that they found out that different cats have different personalities. Mm, yes, yes. And that's an interesting use of language Person, because personality yes. for an animal. But we all know that you have you have two cats they act different from each other. One is I have one, you know, one that's real personable, one that really doesn't care to, you know, be around people, that sort of thing, you know. We but we anthropomorphize them. So we 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 because we we can't escape our own we well we we have a hard time escaping our own viewpoint. Right. This crosses back to other things we've talked about with language. It's not that we're absolutely trapped in our viewpoint, but it's a pretty large gravitic well. So of course we say they have personality because that's closer to what we can understand, but we don't necessarily know. Really, we don't know. We don't even know why the cats purr. We've mentioned that right, before yeah. too. So we don't know what they're thinking. We think intuitively we can look in their eyes, but you look in cat's eyes and it's not the same as looking in dog's eyes. And I love both and have both, but there's something different going on there. Right. Intuitively, we can sense this. But yeah, we try to make it more uh, domesticated. Oh, it's okay. It's safe. It's fine. It's not sitting there thinking how good we might taste. Right. But maybe it is. Yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot of value 
to not looking too deeply into that perspective, especially when it comes to eating food or whatnot, because that's the thing is that, um, you know, I think a cat or a dog is seen as a pet just because of exposure. You know, I think there's a good chance if you had, um, you know, some kind of, and I've, I've actually had this happen a, a couple of years ago at work. I work, you know, I was working at a job where I sat in one place for a long time doing one thing. And it was, it was summertime and there was a bug that flew in and, you know, it wasn't a spider. It wasn't a mosquito. It wasn't anything that was, uh, you know, menacing in any way. It was just a typical bug, you know, and he's just walking around the table and by the patterns he was walking and the things he was doing, my mind is creating this little narrative about, <laughs> about this bug, you know, and long story short, while, you know, after a couple hours of me working here he he died he died and i felt really bad you know about it like i i felt awful and i thought if you can become this attached to something that isn't really displaying any sort of noticeable characteristics in such a short amount of time what that says is you know about you know i think that you create mental guards when you go into a restaurant and you you eat an animal or you do you know you have to do these certain things it it's easier to segment things and say well this is a pet and this is something else in order to just function you know just function in everyday life you, know? you just opened the whole door to, to mill bentham utilitarianism mm -hmm. we'll go there when we when we want to but you just yeah. you just opened that with that very that example yeah so i mean it, it's a real interesting start to the to the conversation you know thinking about all these aspects and not not all of them are as basic as I wanted to start out with but they're all real important parts of what we're talking about. Well they yeah they're huge okay so the the questions we think about do and you can apply this to the insect that you wrote the narrative for in your mind do our travails do our do our troubles do our pleasures have meaning mm -hmm. if we we ask about meaning in life right do they have meaning can can there be purpose in a universe in which we've evolved. If we're the only life form in countless galaxies, is there a meaning in that? Is, is, there, is, there, is meaning and, and purpose the same thing? And on and on. Right. And we'll get there. We'll get there towards the end. Let's talk about the history of life. Um, what philosophers have said about how life starts and why we don't see it elsewhere. You know, the uh, Fermi paradox and the Drake equation, that sort of thing. What, what's the philosophical background? The background goes back to the pre-Socratics, so who took a naturalist view. They weren't talking about a creator or a creative force. I mean, they talked about the unmoved mover in various circumstances, but they were looking for how do things function without having to ascribe it to having been made by something else. And so it's called naturalism. and and uh, natural causes, material conditions, if not the sum total close to it, trying to determine what is life and what is not by the movement, the not movement, the pieces, the atomistic organization of things. Um, and then we get the Socratic uh, methods going, Socrates um, asking a question, challenging 
uh, critiquing the answer, asking another question. So the question of, well, if this is life, then how and why? And, and so a, a steady progression of that. Um, so uh, then, of course, Socrates goes to the next step, and I'm not sure you want us to go there yet, so I'm going to be hesitant about this, but not just what's life, but um, what should we do with it? He gets into the ethics, the ought, uh, human behavior, because he was interested mostly in everything, but particularly in, in humans. And you know, so why, why do we determine what to do in a life, however long we have it, however long we're mobile <laughs> right. in our mind or in our body? Uh, what should we do with that? So what was, the, what was the initial speculation about where life came from when somebody finally asked the question, hey, maybe something didn't make us, so where did, where did things come from? Oh, things that you would, would expect, things like a, a spark, a flame. You know, the, the pre-Socratics were looking at what everything was made of. So if it's water, we came from water. If it's uh, fire, the four elements, you know, we, right. we, we came from those things uh all of which have motion and therefore we arose from it so uh, you have a folktale creation myth that arises from that saying so that uh, for example there's there's rain it creates mud the wind shapes the mud a, a human is i mean i'm extraordinarily simplifying it but uh something like uh, akin to humans so they're looking at nature and finding the movement in nature and translating that movement into animation, essentially. Yes. Yeah. What, was the first, what was the first instance where people started to think about if there was other life outside of Earth? Oh, excellent question. I won't, say, I won't assert this is first, but when you get to... I'll take an example. It was at least started uh, or revisited um, when the medieval um, conception, uh, which actually came from more ancient uh, Greece, but was developed of the music of the spheres, the, 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 the shells of being. So every level of being. So essentially, whether from the lowliest, which is human, to then we get into the the supernatural or the spiritual, uh, some creative element, and then all the uh, the army-like category of right. commanders, sub-commanders, all the way down to the pr privates uh, uh, of, of supernatural beings. But that, see, when you start asking, is there other life, that's when, na uh, I would say naturally, of uh, ancient humans and even, uh, and then those who are already being governed by uh, something like Catholicism in the Middle Ages, uh, you can't separate. Uh, if you've asked if there's a life in the universe uh, and you already have a systemic set of stories of God's God, whatever, um, then you're going to, you and then you invite the supernatural into it. So, so yeah, there was a, I guess I see what you're saying. Systemic, you know, religion governs thinking and there's supernatural beings. So that's kind of the life in the universe. But that, that thought that there might be just normal, 
other life on other places that like the moon did when did people start thinking maybe somebody lives up there oh oh the, well that was the people in the in the uh, 16 17 1800s there were t- tales even then of you know from from the first time when you say there's a man in the moon you you find the the pattern in in the shape then the stories follow the insect lands you create a narrative you you right. notice a pattern you create a narrative uh but we have to remember that the ancients did not think that there were until they started thinking about planets possibility of planets and that could only be confirmed much later with with telescopes mm-hmm. um the stars are sparks right you know and so you're not going to think that there's life on a spark mm-hmm. um so that that only emerges when you start poking your face into the universe with glasses right. <laughs> of various kinds yeah. <clears throat> say oh something might live there because and then we get into the late 1800s early 1900s and you have strong enough telescopes the technology enables the c- c- reconceptualization of the possibility so you uh, you, know, you look at mars and you say ah canals those look extraordinarily like canals and then you start weaving all kinds of possibilities for that. So that brings us up to relatively modern history when Enrico Fermi asks, where is everyone? Yes. You know, and he comes up with a set of answers, you know, to, to describe why we might not be seeing anyone. And, um, and then later on, Drake comes up with an equation based on what we know about the universe, trying to figure out if and how many civilizations there should be out there you know what is all of this saying about being human that we're always that we're looking outside of our current experience to find something is it is it that comfort in trying to say that we're not alone or is it um is it trying to see some of ourself in the universe what you know this is the seeking of meaning from the outside you see even kant and and even, uh, well, all across the spectrum, all the way up through with the philosophers, the idea of life comes back to relationship, social relationship. Um, and that's where ethics develops again. So if you say uh, to yourself, man, we're, this is it. Billions of galaxies and we're the only life. Then you can either get a, 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 uh, an arrogant or or innocent, but along the spectrum of, of response to, well, then if, the, if we're the only ones, we must really have importance mm-hmm. as opposed to, well, if we're the only ones, we're a grand accident, aren't we? Um, and so, and, and, and you follow the path of either one of those viewpoints. And yes, there's an, sure there'd be a loneliness. Mm-hmm. All of that and we're it, it's a mighty scary cold place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope somebody else is out there. Why? Because I hope they're like us. Well, then you're not thinking about the possibilities of alien biology or any, anything else. And when you start thinking about what if life may be there and we wouldn't even recognize it, then we're realizing that, well, perhaps what we want is a relationship. We want to think there are others like us out there. Well, that's embedded in the human condition. Now, what, what are the, the tales of post-apocalyptic? Choose your movie, choose your TV show, choose your book. Somebody's by himself or herself. And they're so untrust, 
untrusting of, but then wanting the company of somebody else who comes up over the hill. Ah, I survived too. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. It's a, it's a cool topic. Let's talk about boundaries of life, conditions for life. Is life fragile? Is it hardy? Um, you know, how, because based on what sort of science we have right now, they're saying that life basically showed up on Earth as soon as it could. Like, while this place was still a, a gigantic volcano, there was things creeping around. But, you know, like we've said, uh, the technology isn't quite there yet, but with what we have, we don't see anything else like it anywhere. And yet we see that we see the planets. We right. we have uh, exoplanets. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, numerous now, and we have the Earth-like, and then it's floating around in the, or orbiting in the Goldilocks zone, where which we understand to be oh well, they're about in the same position Earth would be, and the planets about the same size as Earth. I wonder if there's life there. Right. <laughs> right. So, what does that say? Is is life? Fragile? Is it hardy? What? What is? If you do, well, hardy, in the extreme, we talked about tardigrades before. We talked about the, the things living near volcanic vents, it, it, as you said. So hardy life, in the broadest sense of something that's animate, uh, something that metabolizes, is hardy as all get out. It, rem it reminds me of the discussion we were having a little while back about. I think I mentioned that. You know, the more refined something gets, the more fragile it is. And so we're essentially, we're the hypercars of life. You know, you have the tardigrades, and they can't do much, but you can't kill them. And we can do all kinds of amazing things, but if you don't put the right oil in us, we'll explode. Exactly so. And, and, we, and then because of our various and, and diverse thinking about what life should be, we put ourselves in extreme circumstances that, of course, necessitate a reminder of the fr fragility. Mm -hmm. so you're going to launch yourself up into t uh, tin containers into space to see if what's on the moon, and 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 you've got a computer in the that that isn't that as strong as your cell phone now, um, and you're out there in impossible temperatures, one little puncture, and you're done. Mm -hmm. Um, extremely fragile. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and the people think that it's over-dramatized, but it really wasn't. Landing on the moon, they really didn't know if those guys were going to come back. No. The lead scientist on the mission um, thought that there was a significant possibility that the lunar lander might sink into the regolith and not be able to, not be able to take off again. Yeah. They didn't know if it was going to sink into the sand so far they couldn't get out. And numerous test pilots and and and, and people, uh, astronauts in the earlier Apollos, one, the whole ship burned on, on the pad and, and they were gone. And crashes and, and life lost. And yet, we look at that fragility of the individual life loss and then we say, but life must and will out. Out as in survive, but also you can take out as in move beyond our boundaries and so we accept a certain amount of or we did i don't know that we are we are doing that as much now i think that's a fascinating thing about our culture right now i'm i'm, I'm verging over into the sociological but 
Um, I, I don't say that the time I grew up, I will not be an older guy nostalgist. There were it was there were uglinesses of of terrible kinds, and in my lifetime, so much has happened uh, from a socially conscious viewpoint. So I will never say, "Oh, those were the good old days," but we did have a sense of exploration. Mm. We, in the, in the broadest human sense, that does not seem to be um, fomenting in the same ways yeah no it's really interesting the course that i'm taking right now is about um you know exceptional learners and part of that spectrum is not um students who need more um for a disability reason but also gifted students and they said the biggest problem facing gifted students today is that they're um playing it safe you know these these people with extreme gifts aren't growing up to be the inventor of the next iphone or the inventor of they're growing up to be lawyers and doctors and things that we need but they're not they're not innovating the way that's needed and and this is why the whole topic of what what you just said this is what so i'm i'm immediately thinking nietzsche um nietzsche who would who said you know he he wasn't the entirely grim person people make him out he was he he advocated for a philosophy of cheerfulness of all things um that uh, and by that he meant repressive heavy-handed moralism of the kind that says this is what you will be when you grow up because this is what's functional mm -hmm. no you 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 press your own boundaries to see oh, somebody like you who you do all these adventurous things, really, uh, and and that's when when you repress that too much uh, and make things safe, then you're redefining what it means to have a good life, and that's ethics. Uh, so if you if you're defining a good life as making money, being able to feed, having a family, being able to feed a family, and keeping your head down, and you know, then you're shaping the entire culture. Yeah, I think that that's the big that's the big takeaway is that you're not just shaping your life or restricting or you know because like you're saying it takes some of that enrichment out, but it also it does it for the whole society. You know, and I think that there's a a very big danger to the current um, STEM focused um, slash the humanities know what kind of career path you want when you're 14 yeah. mentality because you put somebody in that mentality and that defines who they are you know and they have this this path set for them and they go down it and like we were talking about you can't you can't look at a steve jobs and say that's what that's what i was gonna do when i grew up he didn't know he was gonna do that i don't care what he said none of these great inventors none of these great None of these people know that that's what they're going to do. They just follow what what they what they love, the things that they're interested in, the things that they're good at, and it takes them places that they couldn't expect. But it does. It requires adventure. It requires some kind of. It requires un unsettling the the boundaries. I mean, this is, and I maybe if we're getting off topic, I don't think we are getting off topic, honestly. But this is as a lifelong teacher, the greatest agony that I feel and see is for students who have been told by whomever in their lives 
as you just said, 14, 15, 16, maybe you're lucky and you get all the way to 18. Now go to college or go to the trade school or treat college like trade school. You're going to do this. This is what's going to happen. And then you're going to live just as we've taught you to live, whatever those boundaries. And and, and it's not necessarily, I'm not saying that people teach their children wrongly to be things. If you think we're teaching our children to be ethical and you try, that that's one thing. But if you're trying to be in control of a young person's life, say, I already foresee what's going to be happening for you because I know you, because I know your strengths and because you're my kid. And so you've got a semester to decide what you're going to do and then you're going to stick with it. And then we have uh, the, the governmental, um, uh, you know, the monetary economics of it. So you have of uh, statewide elements across many states saying, okay, and we're, we're not going to give you financial aid for more than two years. And we will not give you any financial aid to take a course. And that's what we're doing now in SUNY. You, you won't, you cannot have financial aid for a course that is not strictly within the boundaries of your program. So no more can you go like I had a chance to do and say, I'm going to test this course. Mm. I'm going to take art. No, you're not. Not unless it fits within the narrow parameters of what's acceptable for the program you've already had to choose. Right. So this is this is narrowing, narrowing, narrowing. And it restricts the ability of people doing what you and I are doing right now because I mean you you have you have a minor in philosophy and, and you also have an English degree. And if you're not allowed to explore those sorts of things, you have one focus. It's I think that the the, the two aspects of it is there's that economic industrialism on the societal level yeah. that says that, you know, this is what we're gonna do. And then I think on the individual level, the worst part of it is is fear of failure, you know, and I, that's something that I struggle. I still struggle with that quite a bit, but I've finally gotten to the point where you realize that failure is the only way that you learn anything. And we yeah, say yeah. that we right. say that, and, and and that is life. Life is failure, but we and we extol those virtues with posters on elementary and junior high school hallways. No, failing is good. Make mistakes, but we don't carry through on that as nearly. As some do. Many teachers do. I know that, but but the overall uh, zeitgeist, the the gestalt of 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 ed, the educational view, is not making mistakes because that slows you down on the pipeline, the trajectory. Choose your metaphor to get where you're supposed to be, whatever that is. Education becomes obstacles that you get past. Mm. I got this out of the way. I got that out of the way. So then life becomes a getting things out of the way. And if life is just pushing things out of the way, once you've got every obstacle out of the way, what's left? You're done. Yeah. And not only are you done, but you're done at, at a very early age. Because like we're saying, that's, it's, an, it's an economic industrialism. You know, you're, you're, you're taught or told you're going to do this thing. You do these things to make money, to buy things, and then and then you die. And that's the end of it. Like like we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah. I plan on going to school my whole life. And that's I, I don't see an, an end goal because and I don't want there to be one. You know, I, I go because I like doing it and because I have the, the means to do it. And and that's what education should be. You know, it should be something that people are interested in, excited about. They should want to learn, not obtain a credential that allows them access to the next social strata. You know, it's so life is not just about 
movement. See, that's that right. we're going back. It's uh, and this is what the various definitions of life come back to. Either you craft your own essence, which is what Nietzsche was saying. You, you, the essence isn't given to you. When he, when he was talking about God being dead, he was simply saying that the inherent meaning that institutions try to pack into an individual shell do not have the motive force to let that person become everything they could possibly be. And so if, if you believe that your meaning in all that motion is coming from outside, and you then you may you certainly made people become very fulfilled people because of their 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 religious views, or but mostly probably not just the views but the motion the work that they do because of those things. So it's still motion, mm. right? Um, Kant talked about said there there really three things. Three things. Uh, one of them is not using people as a means to your own end. He insisted on that. That's part of the categorical imperative, that people are an end in themselves. And so relationship is part of what life is about. And that, and that the pre-Socratics weren't talking about that, but Socrates started to. And then all the way up through John Stuart Mill, Bentham, Augustine, all the, are saying, well, in various ways, our relationships are what define meaning of life. And it's and so how we intrude in relationship or how we nurture relationships uh, really becomes the essence of what it is to be human. So we are we're getting headlong into ethics now, which is good because that's where we're supposed to be. So what you said is a good segue into the next question, which is should in the light of humans and relationships and that sort of thing should we create or destroy life for various reasons and those are probably two things that we should take one at a time first let's let's start with the more straightforward one i think is it is it okay to destroy life is it okay to to kill and you know, I think that there's that's a two-headed question too. That's you know, you can you question. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, for for the sake of simplicity, you can yeah. split it into destroying plant or animal life and destroying human life as two separate categories. And those those separate categories, like we said earlier on, only exist to make things easier for us psychologically. In in reality, I, destroying life is destroying life. But that's it's part of nature, which is something that I'm going to get into it and the last topic. So I don't want to get into that too much okay. right now. But <laughs> but what 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 do philosophy philosophers say about destroying life? Is it is it okay? The well, let's start. With, I'm not going to go in order. Uh, the utilitarians uh, picked up on this. Um, it, the greatest good for the greatest number. And then you get to, into the saying, starting with that, you get into the debate of, well, what do we mean by the good? And usually utilitarians would say, the good is not causing pain and harm and cruelty. And, and then there's a kind of, the, uh, Bentham Mill and so on, they're kind of arguing with each other about the math 
of this, the, the mathematics of this. So if you have a relatively small amount of cruelty or a relatively large amount of betterment for the culture, is that allowable? And, and Kant would say, well, no, because the moment you intentionally decide to do ill, you've already removed yourself from the possibility of, of being ethical. Uh, but others say, well, no. I mean, Mill and Bethlehem had a had a quite a talk about eating meat. You, you brought that up before. Uh, I think it was Bentham I, uh, who said that. Well, the, the relatively quick and small amount of cruelty to the individual animal is much smaller than the the benefit that uh, eating that would uh, would do for the human being. Mill wasn't so comfortable with that. <laughs> Um, and so I don't know if I'm straying from your question so re-guide me here so is it okay to destroy life what separates a soldier like me from a murderer or is there a separation are they the same what what sort of in is it ever okay to destroy life and if it is okay when is it okay oh those are yeah that's okay so if you're sanctioned by law, by a social contract, to carry out a duty to kill on behalf of the culture. And I know that soldiers do so much more than this, and so I, I'm not, uh, but, it, but if, we, if we look just at the bare bones of it, you, James Bond has a license to kill. How can right. you have a license to do something that we say is wrong? But, but, but soldiers have that, um, a sanction. Uh, we we ask people to step up and do that which we don't want to do, uh, so that we can keep going to Walmart. <laughs> okay, and and so we we don't necessarily think about what that's really asking of individuals. And I sometimes think that especially young individuals who go in don't necessarily understand what they're being asked to do either, because that's the nature of youth. Um, and so. Is it wrong to kill is is a different kind of question than is it capital W wrong to kill? So clearly it's not wrong to kill if a soldier is given an order to kill. And we all, like you said, eating meat, even if you're a vegetarian, you take life to eat vegetables. This is nature. So everybody takes life. And we'll go into the element, the elephant in the room, but I don't, I don't want to dwell on the controversial issues too much because that just sets people away from what the actual thought mm -hmm. is. But women have a right to choose to have an abortion. Many people are upset about that, but actually, if you look at the statistics across the country, roughly relatively sixty-eight to seventy percent said yes. You know, so the culture is saying, okay, this is not. A happy choice necessarily. This is, there are all kinds of reasons that the choice is made, but but we have the the legal, social sanction, and and more people than not think okay, yes, certainly not in all circumstances. Not you know there are there are parameters. There are parameters for a soldier. Put a gun in your hand and say okay, now go kill people. No, that's not what you're being told. SOP standard operating procedure rules of engagement. Rules of engagement. So the, the same. So we can't just talk about it the right or the wrong because it's not the rules aren't that simple mm. 
And, and I think that's true for anything. So uh, idea of killing. So what you unfortunately are put in the position of having to do as a soldier, one hopes you don't, but but if you do, you, you have that that's so vastly different than a person who straps a, a, a bomb to herself or himself. Because I don't like what this, I don't like the fact that society is allowing this, and so I'm just going to show them. I'm going to make a statement. Um, and we would say that's wrongful killing. Uh, and that brings up an interesting question about who's deciding right and wrong, you know? And yeah. like we talked about social contracts and majorities and minorities, but is it possible that a majority can still be wrong? You know? Where does the ethics come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from the majority? Does it come from some other? You know, it brings back in these questions. It does. And then, and, and if you open up sacred texts and you look really closely at them, you realize that God sanctioned lots of killing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, I know I make people upset by saying that too, but read your Old Testament. No, read, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, true. There's, there's, it's always, there's killing in every scenario, but it just depends on who's making the rules for when it's okay and when it's not. Cain and Abel, not so nice. But, you know, the children in the Passover story, well, okay. Right. Collateral damage. I mean, so yeah, you, if you're going to talk about it, you have to look at the, the complexities that are, are multi-narratives over millennia have led to. So the answer to if it's okay to destroy life or not is that there is no answer. <laughs> it depends on who is making the rules. Virtue ethics, which which is almost a situational context within this situation, given these this this situation, the people involved, and the ends that might happen. Right. That's. So let's move to the, the the other question: was is it okay to create life? And I'm not talking about naturally. I'm talking about is it okay for us to create life in an artificial way? And these goes back to stories about. Frankenstein, it comes up to the most recent thing that I read last week was scientists are growing brains in laboratories to test drugs on as opposed to using them on testing them on mice or these sorts of things. Right. I mean, they're growing elements of brains. They're not growing right. fully. It's, it's not, it's not the 1950s yeah. science yes, fiction. Yeah. No, there's, there's many different cells that make up. But also, there's, there's CRISPR. Right. The yeah. CRISPR technology, which um, is an amazing mm -hmm. concept, but uh, the scientific community is going nuts right now, understandably, about the ethics of the Chinese doctor who says that he used CRISPR to uh, try to make uh, two uh, twin girls that he created from a cell um, HIV impervious. And the weighing in around the planet has been is fascinating about this. See, we, and so we want technology and, and science to help us live longer and better. But then we get into, oh, but we, we can't do this or that or the other thing. And, and we haven't invented all those rules yet. Right. So people are just, as you say, this quarter says this, that corner says that, somebody else says, says this. And, and that's forcing ethicists to say, well, what is inviolate, uh, in, 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 not to violate life, but what is allowable? Right, uh, and there's there right now, there's not an answer. Yeah, it's the wild west out there. Yeah, because it it doesn't just bring up ethical questions about you know what you're doing to the life that's being created, but again, it brings up societal questions and strife. 
because you know you have no doubt that if if china is creating people the u.s is thinking well what if china decides to make super soldiers or Right. You know, super scientists or super, you know, designer, designer babies yes. is the call. Designer. Okay, so so then you want rules to say, <clears throat> right? We're, we're just following the process. So some groups, organizations of scientists and human beings are going to say, well, this is allowable and this isn't, and, and then Socratically, well, why? Why would we allow this and that? Well, uh, why would we allow somebody to experiment on uh, using CRISPR if we could CRISPR away? whatever it is that causes Alzheimer's, would we not embrace that? Well, what makes that okay, but but uh, not okay to want your uh, child to be able to speak? Right. You know, what, what makes it okay to eliminate Alzheimer's, but not Asperger's? Uh, and and I'm only I'm, I'm not you know casting I, I want to clear when we're talking about this I'm just saying that there's a spectrum and a range of things that we consider a gift mm-hmm. or an alternate gift an alternate ability as opposed to a devastation. Yeah, and this comes back to what we were talking about in the first episode about categorization. Categorization is what makes us human that's that's part of being human is putting these things into these neat boxes and that's not the way they exist in reality so no we can say that this is what constitutes um this sort of thing and and the geneticists are finding this out you know they originally they thought they'd be able to go in and it would be editing genes for certain things but what they've started to find out is that multiple genes dozens of genes contribute to one thing and all of those genes also contribute to other things. So you can't just affect, in most cases, in most cases, you can't just affect one part of a person or of a behavior. You're going to be changing a range of things and trying to draw the line on what you are changing or on what defines a behavior that's being changed really becomes very murky territory. And it's, you know, it's a fascinating a fascinating question because you know creating life comes with a lot of those same problems as destroying life but it also comes with a whole different set of well people people choose have babies sometimes they can't even when they choose sometimes they adopt and sometimes they they don't but if you if you look really hard at we have babies why because we want to have babies why because we want there to be another generation now, we want to have the joy of raising a child. Why? So we can have the experience, but we're bringing a life into the world so we can enjoy the life, but then we're going to be gone, and that that adult is there, and one hopes that they're they're happy to have had the experience, but when you, when you look right at it, it's an incredibly selfish right. uh, uh, act. It's it's wonderful. I I'm right. I'm so I I I am so grateful for the children that I was part of bringing into this world. And I'm so grateful to work with the children who now adults, uh, you being one. But so I'm not saying, oh, gee, I wish I wasn't a father. Of course, I'm, I'm impossibly pleased that I am. But it's still a selfish event. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that this is an important part of doing philosophy is looking past the intuitive part of it. And the sentimental. Yeah. And the sentimental part and saying, well, Generally, if you break it down and look at 
just nature in general, the per the meaning of life is to create more life. Yes, that's that's what the mechanistic the, this uh, what Hannah Arendt um, in the 20th century, later 20th century, would would call scientism. She was she was saying that life is not just the meat machine. Of that scientism, uh, she, 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 she did not bash science, quite the opposite. But scientism, the idea that everything can be explained by the materialist and the physical, the, the nat, going, that goes right back to the pre-Socratics with life, the naturalist. Um, no, she says there, there's more to it than that. But ultimately, yeah, we're biological machines creating more machines. <laughs> so that's a good segue into our, our last topic before the discussion, which is, um, the difference. How does living for humans contrast with other types of life? And this comes back to my little bug anecdote there. Because how much of looking at nature and looking at other life is us anthropomorphizing? And how much of it is actually nature and different things having more complexity than we like to attribute to them? That's partly almost inescapably taggable uh, to, as you say, the narratives we create, uh, religious narrative, uh, be fruitful and multiply and the earth is here to serve you. Okay. Well, it, if you take that view, then everything is in service to us because we're at the top. Mm. <laughs> But if you take the view that life is precious, like uh, a religious group like the Jains, Jainism, which barely can eat even plant, lots of plants you can't eat for the various reasons, uh, bare subsistence, uh, then you're saying that all life has worth. Well, worth is a value word, <laughs> right? So if I say it has worth, then it means I'm going to determine that some things don't. And this comes back into aesthetics which is funny you don't it think does. aesthetics seems like such it seems like a it always seemed like a weird category to me like metaphysics i see that connecting to everything epistemology i see that connect logic and then there's aesthetics and i feel like it's just like its own thing and it doesn't really connect and you know what but no it's it's value it's value systems and as soon as you start asking about value systems you can see how that connects to everything because of that and what is beautiful we we I say we as a humanity across our collective history, we've had no problem destroying things we find subhuman or ugly. And that's a value judgment. That's a, it's a yeah, determining worth. So is beauty that one sees that life makes it have more worth and therefore we won't kill that. See that you're right. It's, it's absolutely aesthetic. And also societal value judgments, because, you know, you can look at two types of life. You know, maybe there's one person who never gets married, never has kids, goes on to invent something that benefits everybody. And then you could have somebody who does get married, does have kids, works nine to five and dies. Well, which one of those does society value? Because you, you, can, you can look at it and people are going to find one of those lives more beautiful than the other, more worthwhile, more whatever. And it's going to depend on the person it's going to be turned on but what does society say about those things as yeah well? yes as well and what and what society says this is where so, uh, you know this is where i would this is where i take nietzsche's 
side. We craft our essence. We, we, we find our, it's existential. We find our meaning. We're sitting here having these conversations. It's extraordinarily, uh, I'm heartfelt about this. You know this, meaningful to me that you reached out. We're, we're doing this. We're having these conversations. Are we bettering the world? I don't know. I'm not going to make that claim. Are, is my mind being uh, and heart being bettered by having these? Absolutely. Is it possible that it could um, in, engage more conversations and relationships with your friends or with my students? Possibly. Um, is that the, the most important thing? No, the here and now of alternatively, what could I be doing? Well, maybe something else interesting, maybe something else mundane. This is much more interesting. Right. So that's the meaning that we, that we give to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so just a little tangent on value systems and, and worth. But coming back to the question yeah. about contrast, difference between human experience and other kinds of life. I think that there's some interesting science that's happening right now. Um, they're finding out that forest systems are connected by fungi underground, and these fungi kind of communicate, communicate with the trees and other plants and tell them, oh, hey, tree, you have too much water. This thing over here needs some. Give me some water, and I'll give it to this. And it's almost an, a, a vegetable intelligence, kind of. The, the old Gaia hypothesis that the Earth itself is alive, uh, you know, Little side note, Stanislaw Lem, amazing science fiction writer, was the first person to really take that concept and work it in a story. But yeah, yeah. okay, so the Earth is a biological machine and, and it's managing to tell itself some things. Right. So you have that. And then you also have um, animals. I saw a study that scientists had figured out dragonflies are able to anticipate their body in space before arriving, which they said based on their. Um, brain volume should not be possible. They they shouldn't have the requisite number of neurons to actually complete this calculation in their head, but they can. So that brings me back to the question that I asked originally, which was how much of it is us, me anthropomorphizing the little bug? None of that's actually happening. He's just a little stupid bug. He doesn't know what's going on. Or how much of it is that bug is a lot more complex than I can understand, and he actually does have something going on. And you're appreciating the complexity. Right. So there's a definition for life. Uh, perhaps human to be fully human is to appreciate the complexity of the things around one, to, to refuse to make it all simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's food for thought for sure. It's something I think about quite a bit. Where is that? It's perspective, you know? And you, you can't get outside your own perspective, but man, it's fun to try. You know, in in college, I had a, 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 a one of the most influential people. I met him one. He would never, he's gone, and and he wouldn't remember anyway. He's a, he was a major scholar, going around to all kinds of institutions to talk to undergraduates. <clears throat> and he, he came to St. Lawrence University. His name was Wayne Booth, Wayne C. Booth, and he was an amazing social critic and literary scholar and many things um and i didn't know who he was you know i just you go to college and here's a lecture and your teacher says go go hear this lecture so here's a 20 25 people sitting in a at a snowy night in a in a university center sitting with coffee or coke or whatever sitting and drinking and here comes this old guy talking about it was about the idea of his, his speech was it's more complicated than that. That was the title of his speech. And that single speech did so much to my mindset. 
I, I read everything I could of Wayne Booth afterward. I and if I met him again. You know, he shook his hand for two seconds and gone. But but his work um, and the complexity, the idea of complexity. You know, so many people want everything to be simple. Just give me the gist of it. Why do I have to read so much? Why can't the sentences be shorter? Why isn't it this simpler? Because life isn't simple. And and to try to understand it requires an appreciation for complexity without ever expecting yourself to totally get it. Right. Yeah, and you and I had a conversation outside the podcast about that in language, you know, and how the modern vocabulary is shrinking and if you use a word and somebody doesn't understand it and they ask you what it means, you know, you, you try to describe it to them and they say, well, why didn't you just say that? You know, well, it's because there's a whole word that describes this set of things. And if you try to describe it in other words, it loses its essence, you know, and, and language, even the best language isn't enough to capture what is actually happening in your cognition. You know, it does, it doesn't, it doesn't do it justice. So here's a metaphor for you. You just got logos, right? Logos is the word, but logos is a rational, logical structure. It means many things. Okay. You try to describe a word by using it, describe something by using a different word, you lose the essence. We are all words. We are all incredibly complicated, wonderfully nuanced words. That's what life is. That blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> All right, okay. So we'll move. We're, let's move into our topic, um, which is it's it's kind of a hard one. But as we're finding out through these podcasts, nothing in philosophy is easy. <laughs> Even the most basic topics we can't we can't describe. So, and so the question is, um, is is suicide wrong? And it's it's kind of a tough topic um but i guess i'll i'll go through what i have and then you can cut yeah and we'll we'll discuss it but so the f the first thing that i wanted to bring up is something that I've, I've mentioned kind of throughout the episode a little bit which is that living and dying and killing are all natural occurrences things live we don't know where they came from or how it works, but things are alive. Everything that we know of dies, except for maybe certain types of jellyfish-like creatures <laughs> that just continually go through their life cycle. But we can't prove it one way or another because nobody lives long enough to see if they ever do die. But for the most part, everything dies. And killing is a regular occurrence it doesn't matter if you're a vegetarian or a you know a war hero or a serial killer or a, every killing happens every day every day things die and things destroy other things in order to survive or to establish a territory or for any number of reasons things destroy other things so from that sort of viewpoint Suicide doesn't seem wrong because it's in merely a early, um, it's an early termination of something that would happen anyways. So from a purely um, kind of logical viewpoint, you're just saying, well, you're just, rather than delaying the inevitable, you're just doing something right now. 
So that's one, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that human consciousness creates more responsibility to do no harm. You know, I think that everybody's watched the nature documentaries and like we write the narratives, we write the narratives for the prey animal. We write the narratives for, I think we do less of writing the narratives for the, the predator. You know, you see the prey animal get eaten and you feel very sad. But what you don't realize is that life for the predator is very hard. They are only successful in one out of ten of their hunts. If they're not successful, they can't feed their babies. If their babies don't get fed, these majestic animals go extinct. We have less tigers in the wild than we have in New York City right now because the things require a large amount of territory, a large amount of food and they don't have the resources to, to collect it. So we have the narratives for these things. Um, but the fact is we don't, know what, we don't know what they're thinking. We don't know what the prey animal or the predator animal is thinking or if they're capable of thinking about an ethics, you know. But humans do. We do have that ability. We can put ourselves in that. And so from that point of view, we look at suicide and we think, that we could help those people live a meaningful life if only they had the help, if they had the resources, you know, if they have those sorts of things. And so from that viewpoint, suicide does seem wrong. You know, it seems like there's, there's a, it's a, you, we hear it all the time. It's a temporary or a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, there's, it, there could be, a remedy or a remediation of you know the issue in order to successfully rehabilitate somebody and the last question you know is ultimately is an individual responsible to no one but himself and i think that that is kind of the determining factor in people who do commit suicide am i responsible to anybody but me and i don't have the answer to that and i'm sure that there are people who do or think they do have the answer to that, you know, and you know, there's religious implications, there's societal implications, there's family implications. But I think that's the question that that kind of determines that is who is, who are we as individuals responsible to? So that's, that, those are kind of the, not, not the answers, but the questions <laughs> yeah. to the question. You know? yeah. Well, okay. Uh, as uh, I, I'm the the absolute width and breadth <clears throat> of that, I won't be able to address adequately within our time, nor should I be able to. But you see, I think what we do is we mark conditions, as you say, responsibility. So, there's conditions, as responsibilities of various kinds, <clears throat> and there's um fear and desire as well so we don't want someone we love to commit suicide because we want them with us because we think it can be better because we're essentially optimistic creatures and if it is a condition you know, we've talked before about medicine uh, the tiniest particle of medicine can sometimes change a mindset or reset things a bit not solve it but mm -hmm. Um, and we value life. I mean, that's a that's a universal thing. We value life. We we argue about when to kill, when not to kill. But also, we say 
no, we're not trying to kill everything. Mm. And so, and we, and we say that it's not just the individual life, but the value to overall culture. We, that last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, depending on, it, it was, it was in 2018 in the fall. Uh, reports came out that the lifespan of American males is starting to grow shorter again. And the two circumstances that have led to that are suicide first, which is amazing mm. that it's affecting the overall you know, statistics about survival and opioid-related things. So should I be concerned that the overall American lifespan is, for men is diminishing because people are committing suicide? That's not my concern. The number is not my concern. As oh dear, I'm sorry, the number is going down for lifespan. That's not that's not the individual concern. What the concern is the why. You know, if someone is in utter despair, we don't want because we're decent beings. We don't want people to be in despair. And if we think that we can help them not be in despair, that's that's one level of things. The second, the utter devastation that it wrecks upon a family. A marriage, a, a a generation within the family, uh, the people that that do get left. You said the the permanent solution to a temporary problem. Well, uh, the the narrative that goes on after the person's killed himself is the son and the daughter and whomever saying, "Really, after all you've lived, that's that's what the message is. That's you know, so you're you're having a bad." <clears throat> life right now and so okay but you brought up the responsibility who are we responsible to if we believe we're responsible to nobody but ourselves we probably oughtn't to be having families in the first place <laughs> right yeah. um and you know i'm just i'm, I'm not proselytizing i'm just speaking as one person thinking as with the question you've given me now ask me 10 minutes from now maybe <laughs> uh but to follow through with it it's also the age and the condition so yes, if 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 I'm 85, I am going to have a painful, lingering death from some kind of awful cancer, let's say. And I have the capacity to say, no, I will take a collection of pills now and I will leave. A, uh, because I don't want my family to have to go through everything from, from resources right. to emotional agony. Uh, watching the death by degrees, uh, I should have the right to say no. But now I'm being really, you know, so I say I should have the right as an old person, an ancient person can have the right to say no, it's done. But not a young person. Right. <laughs> so, and we say that because we there's possibilities for your life. Maybe we're at the other end of possible. Well, life has a possibility to the last breath you take, I suppose. Mm. And that's where the religious thing comes in. God will decide, not you. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe it's instructive somehow to let people watch you die in agony. I, I never got that. Um, but it's there. The idea is certainly there. So. Yeah, that, I think that's a great, that's a great way to end it because I was worried. I was like, as I was finishing up my part of it, I thought, man, what a, what a way. Down a down note to end the show on, but you brought back a lot of the things that made this show so interesting. Is you know some of those controversial topics, 
abortion, um, you know, when it's okay to take your own life, um, you brought back in the value judgments. What, what makes a life worthwhile at what different points? Um, you know, all that stuff came back and it really highlighted what an interesting episode this was. Yeah. I, had, I had a lot of fun doing this one because it is just, there's so many things to think about. And as always, the questions just bring up more questions and it gets you thinking and the process never stops. Thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.